Welcome to Pin Count, the podcast where we go deep into the tech. I'm Douglas Shearer, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Wallace. Hiya. Hi, Ian. Right, so what have we got this week? I think we start with some follow-up from last episode. Yeah, so last episode we were looking at some benchmarks for the Titan V and V100, and someone had benchmarks where the two were benchmarked against each other, and we didn't understand some of the results. Um, the V100 came out slightly faster than the Titan V, and we didn't understand why. So we both did a bit of research after the show. Turns out V100 has extra memory bandwidth, has more thermal headroom to play with, and a bunch of other small things that make a difference. Yeah, I mean, it was a deep learning benchmark we're looking at, so memory bandwidth is important. And yeah, we were looking at a 4096-bit versus 372-bit address, sorry, memory bus with there. So yeah, the bandwidth goes up as well, 900 gigabits a second V100, up from 653. Although I wonder what clocks they're comparing against boost speed-wise. But anyway, the benchmark we're looking at, it didn't specify the operating environment of the Titan V, but it did specify it was a V100 and EC2. And uh, we'll put a link in the show notes, but found um, screenshots of NVIDIA SMI uh, from someone running Hashcat on a AWS P3 16X large, that's V100s. And it confirms that they are 300 watt uh, V100s, which means they're on the mezzanine connector uh, rather than a PCIe card, which is uh, interesting, I guess. Yeah, I mean, Amazon make all their own hardware, so I'm sure it's easy enough for them to knock up a version of their boxes with a mezzanine support in it. Yeah, I mean, or you can um, you can buy Dell servers with mezzanine connectors now as well. Okay. So yeah, that's interesting. Um, on the kind of benchmark front for the Titan V, Linus Tech Tips have some good videos on this, and it should put the link in there. Yeah, so the, the, this is one of the, actually some of the best benchmarks I've seen for the Titan V compared to sort of other cards you might buy if you're considering a desktop workstation um, for, for deep learning. Uh, they also did gaming benchmarks, but it's a little bit pointless. Um, it did come out on top, unsurprisingly. But the deep learning benchmarks and productivity benchmarks, um, sort of 3D creation software, that sort of thing, um, benchmarked it against the sort of big cards from AMD and also some of the other... Uh, nvidia models as well the, the problem i have with some of these benchmarks are they're always all about speed whereas what you get in a v100 is yeah 16 gigs versus 12 gigs ram and you get to a point where when you need the memory you need the memory right and yeah nothing yeah. comes close i mean for most of the time yeah. you don't but um especially as kind of for a lot of standard models in deep learning 12 gig is the number that everyone tunes for because it's what the previous titan x's and previous Quadros were spec'd with, so that's kind of everyone's sweet spot. But I do wonder if you'll see the sweet spot shift. Um, you do see a lot about the kind of compute inequality in deep learning research, where you get academics folks doing interesting and clever things, but they can't afford the compute resource of like so Google and Fair, at Facebook. So very yeah, different yeah. sorts of uh, research being done there. Yeah, I mean we quite often com- complain or discuss about um, Facebook or Google papers where they talk about training a model and then they reveal their hardware and it's hundreds of machines at the same time. Yeah. So, okay, we kind of normally do some newsy topics, so it's not so much news as in new things that have kind of caught our eye. I've been super busy with work the past few weeks, so you've put a few articles in here. Do you want to tell me what you've put in and why it's interesting and why everyone should click the links? Yeah, so the first one was a, a piece that um, about Bitmain. Bitmain are a company that make um, Bit, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency mining hardware, like basically little boxes that sit on your desk and do everything themselves without the need for a PC. They were one of the first people to get in on it. They were basically going for the, you know, don't mine the gold, sell the pickaxes thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, this article was saying that they're buying 20,000 six nanometer 
wafers a month from TSMC. Wow. And that rivals like some of the biggest chip orders TSMC will get. So that is a huge business now. Wow. There's also another link, link in here that says they made four billion in revenue last year. Yeah, and seeing... lots of the metrics compete with Nvidia for sort of size financially. Yeah, they're saying they're a bigger customer than Nvidia for TSMC and that they could be making six hundred thousand of their mining systems per month. That's yeah. that's maximum out of wafer, so they won't get yields. And yeah. they won't get yields like that. I wonder what the yields are, but that's still yeah, big business. Yeah, I mean it's a super interesting business since the beginning. Lots of the miners you have to pre order it like months in advance before they're even out and they iterate quite quickly on them. So by the time you're actually getting your pre ordered miner, there's probably a newer version in the works or out very soon after that. Um, so they get lots of money up front from people. They're not waiting for retail sales further down the line. So I guess that drives on their development quite quickly. Hmm. But lots of cash. Okay, so um, you've also got mentioned some NVIDIA stuff there, Turing and Ampere architectures. Yeah, so I'll, I'll post some links for this. Um, there's been a little bit of chat about what will happen with NVIDIA Volta when it comes to the sort of consumer gaming cards. Or if they'll skip it, right? That's or if they'll skip it, yeah. There's been the name NVIDIA Ampere floating around for like the last couple of weeks as a potential name for the architecture for their consumer cards. And this makes it sounds like they're making for the first time a definite split between your sort of Titan V, deep learning, leaning cards, but still not a quadro, and the sort of gaming cards, uh, like the GeForce models. Um, yeah, it's all speculation at this point. There's guesses on model numbers, and it's interesting to see what happens there. They've also got cards that are being called Turing and these are dedicated um, cryptocurrency mining cards which is interesting on two fronts one the graphics card market's really sort of starved just now it's really hard to get almost any of the standard NVIDIA gaming cards and some of the AMD ones I've been trying to buy some 1070s recently the Founders Editions one Founders Editions ones and it's been yeah pretty difficult to get them at sort of decent prices so this is NVIDIA addressing that, but also the needs of the cryptocurrency mining is quite interesting. I've been running um, an Ethereum miner on one of my machines for the last couple of weeks, and it actually runs best or runs fastest when you clock this, this sort of GPU itself down and clock the memory up. Okay. So like the deep learning benchmarks we talked about earlier, it really sort of relies on the memory bandwidth more than other things. So I guess they tune the cards for that and then get miners to buy those rather than the gaming cards. Okay. Um so while we're talking about deep learning, I noticed you've dumped in a few links on uh, deep learning stuff that's caught your eye here, I guess. Yeah, so the first one was Facebook have uh, open-sourced their Detectron library, which is uh, it's not really a library, it's a platform for object detection research, they call it. Um, built with Cafe 2, and it's a system you feed images in and it tells you what all the things are in the images, like you know, people, children, bicycles, that sort of thing. Um, so the inter- uh, just looking at this, the interesting things are, the author on this post is uh, Ross Gershick, and he is like he's the guy or the guy or one of the guys but he was the guy that's the kind of common theme through um rcnn uh region cnn fast rcnn fast rcnn anyone that follows like ImageNet benchmarks it's these networks based on these these architectures that are the winning things in ImageNet. so like he is the guy on object detection yeah yes i mean it's like you were saying about the sort of unfairness of um, academic research versus Google and Facebook. Also, the big money of Google and Facebook's like taken lots of this, these guys out of academia and into Facebook and Google. But luckily, lots of the time they are actually still given back. Yeah, this is super interesting. I mean, it's 
yeah, definitely something I'll be looking at using for some of my work. I think, but yeah, and it's on GitHub, so it's you know it's not like it's hidden anywhere or uh, a secret thing. Yeah, I wonder if they've got any. Facebook used to be really bad for having slightly weird clauses in their licenses. So this one's just the, even says in the article, which is actually quite surprising because I remember the same with some of Facebook's licenses. Um, it's Apache two 2.0 license, so you know it's pretty easy for your lawyers to work out what that means for your project. Hmm. But they used to say they used standard BSD and it was actually modified with a patent grant clause, but yeah. So the second thing I posted, similar also on GitHub, but this time by NVIDIA, is a library called Fast Photo Style. We've talked about photo uh, style transfer before, where you take the sort of style of a Van Gogh painting and you apply it to a photograph and you end up with the original photograph in a Van Gogh style. Well, this is a library for doing exactly that sort of thing. Not mind-blowing examples, but yeah, in- interesting examples on the GitHub uh, documentation page um, yeah, it's again it's, cool. something, it's something anyone can get and run and you know play with this links you know, nicely into our computational photography topic from a few episodes back this is one of the things I was talking about like well, how long before I mean so um, third one down there you've got an IR photo then a regular RGB photo and then they've got that style transferred into the style of an infrared photo and that's yeah be interesting to see what sort of resolutions they can hit and what compute requires to do that but um, yeah I mean you, you would you would assume over time the computational needs sort of come down and then this is in like, you know, two versions, you know, up to two versions in the future version of iOS. And, you know, it just does this in the camera app. Yeah, it's pretty cool. But, I mean, one of the things that impressed me about this and about the, maybe less so with the um, uh, Facebook Detectron is like this NVIDIA thing's actually quite approachable. Like all the code's there, there's instructions there, you just get it and you run it on your, your GPU, you know. It's um, yeah, it's quite cool. Mm, Docker files as well, nice. Um, okay, so I'll just gonna skip over a link you've got here uh, on chip stuff and go on. You've put a link here about um, cloud TPUs becoming available. So, did you see the link about Lime? Lime. Uh, no. Under Nvidia Fast Photo Style, there's a, a GitHub link. GitHub forward slash macro okay, CTR yep, yeah, forward slash Lime. Okay. So this is a explanation. An explanation tool, a tool for explaining why a machine learning classifier has made the choice it has when classifying something. One of the big, there's a famous book about this and I can't remember it. I'll find it afterwards and put it in the show notes. Um, There was a 99% Invisible article about it, I think. And it's basically like human biases end up being in these classifiers for all sorts of things. So the example they used a lot was... um, and deciding whether criminals should be allowed bail, um, you know, it takes in the, into account a bunch of factors, and basically they, they build a system around that. That then a computer decides whether you get bail if you've committed a, a crime or not. Um, and one of the problems with that is you end up with biases in it, where it might actually subconsciously bail decisions are made based on skin color or um, yeah, yeah, you know, you know, other background issues, and then the machine ends up learning that as well. Tools like this are what we're going to need to help explain why those decisions have been made. Also, it's it's necessary where uh, I guess any serious or action with consequences comes out of a machine learning system. So, I used to have to deal with this kind of stuff in previous employment, where you're um, producing AI machine systems for spacecraft, and they're potentially like your sort of technical decisions are limited by what you can explain about how it works and how opaque the system is because if you're going to make decisions on what a mars rover does based on the output of an ai system you need to be really sure you know why why it's doing things and why it might go wrong because like in this case you've got a um what we call something that's under sensed so a lot of um 
working out what's happening in spacecraft comes going well why would it have made this decision what would it have seen that we can't see and then so you, you know having transparent systems that you can understand is very important for a lot of applications yeah do you see ex- explain tools like this sort of becoming the norm for lots of things or at least to meet to meet regular regulatory requirements yeah it's an interesting one because what i what i typically see is that people hold ai systems to standards that humans c- do not exist for humans or could not meet right so for example yeah. you've got some inspection task and uh, someone's like oh well how good your machine learning system oh, i don't know if, i don't know if i trust it you know my guys are pretty good and you go like all right then what's their um what, what's their error rate how many do they get wrong how many do they miss yeah how does that vary over their 12-hour shift, you know? I mean, surely they're not yeah. as good after 11 hours. And then the answer is, I don't know, <laughs> right, yeah. every time. And you're like, okay then, so I can tell you exactly empirically how good my system is. <laughs> um, you know, what What makes you think your person's better? Yeah, that that's a, that is a really, really interesting point that I hadn't really thought about before. I mean, could, could you use something like Amazon's Meta- Mechanical Turk to classify images and in you know, and then work at the statistics on how accurate the humans are. You know, and then, and then have a then have a trained team that does the same. Yeah, this this has been done for ImageNet, but I mean, there's a difference between um, these kind of academic situations where you're interested in these sort of kind of typical baselines, and when you're actually saying to a person doing a real job, "Here's my AI system, and it's gonna it's gonna do this job for you." Yeah. And then they want all kinds of convincing that they don't need with a person. And I'm like, come on, some people are stupid, right? You've all met people that you wouldn't trust to do a job. It's not even stupid. I mean, it's just carelessness, tiredness, as you said, you know, not having all the information or not picking up on all the information. You know, humans are pretty fallible. Yeah, so I mean, say, yeah, explain things, but actually empirical results to convince people are important as well. So I don't know, I think it will be a mixture. Um, because the reason people trust people is people understand people, right? So, I mean, I can flip that that argument both ways and support your case where you need these tools. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, so, chip reliability, you got some things here on this. Oh, no, sorry, we're talking about cloud TPUs. Yeah. So, Google, we've spoken about Google's uh, tensor processing units before. This is Google's own custom hardware to do tensor calculations for deep learning, specifically for their uh, TensorFlow uh, models. Um, dedicated hardware is connected to some, you know, x86 servers. Um, or you can now get these in Google Cloud. Um, you can actually rent them by the hour. Connected by um, IP. You, uh, you connect. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. So, um, yeah, I've put this uh, this benchmark in from the RiseML blog. Um, so yep. RiseML are a company that um, they do software systems to manage clusters of machines to manage your experiments i met them at gtc but um so this is clearly their propaganda around what they're doing but they've got some interest they've actually gone and benchmark tpus because i mean this is yep. what they do they run experiments and things so basically the answer is they're real fast right so yep they've got some graphs down here there's some nice big numbers there against tpus <laughs> but so i mean for example they've got resnet 50 here they're saying okay our resnet 50 a single cloud DPU is 8.4 times faster than a single P100, 5.1 times faster than the V100. Um, yep. And then they've got Inception V3 as well, which is quite a big network, so that's uh, that's similar. But that's not actually... I mean, it's fast, yeah, but I mean, you look at the cost. They're yeah. also, you know, three and a quarter times the cost, so for five times yes. faster, I mean, it's not it's not necessarily going to play out. That's, how, that's the best bet for everybody. And then 
so there is a table further down where they have performance, you know, the performance in images per dollar, and then yeah. the TPU does edge ahead, but it's not a huge amount. You know? mm. And then, of course, um, they're talking about on-demand pricing as well. So, you know, the uh, the pr- pricing can vary quite a lot, especially on AWS. I'm not sure yeah. why Google yeah. have not tried. Um, but also, in some, some cases, like I said, with the memory on the card, sometimes you need a certain level of performance and nothing else will do. They're doing nearly 2,000 images a second on a TPU compared to 700 on a V100, right? Yeah. The absolute performance, it's a monster, so... Yeah. yeah. Um, but most interesting in this benchmark, I think, is... Um, so they, um, ResNet 50, Inception V3, Inception's a Google architecture in the first place. This is all common vanilla stuff. You can guarantee they'll have made it work well on TensorFlow and made it work well on their TPU, right? The Rizomel took their this custom model they have, which is an LSTM for text classification, uh, and then they ran it on the TPU and happy days, it's much faster they got 7.7 times speed up than the V100 apart from they couldn't get the models to converge in training, which is a big gotcha, I think So, so if, in layman's terms, what do you mean by that? Uh, they couldn't make it learn properly Okay, right um, Or they couldn't be certain it had learned properly and they're say, But they're saying same batch size and model etc on GPUs work fine um, So they think it's a bug but they don't know But I think it's only one data point, you know, anecdata, data, as they yep. say. Yep. But I think it's an interesting one. I mean, these are guys whose job it is to run ML experiments, right? And um, they took their own model, they ran it on a TPU, and it ran super fast, but it didn't work right. <laughs> I mean, that's. Mm. I mean, it probably trained, but just not properly, right? So it's. Yeah. I don't know. Super interesting. One of the things you said right at the start of that was that you know that there um, you get an IP address for the TPU. Yeah. Um, and we previously talked about this um, when there was the I can't remember who what, who the articles were. They had the sort of deep dive on it. They they were connected. The TPUs were connected to the PCs or to PCs, the servers by PCI interfaces. But I wonder if you're actually connecting to one of those servers rather than connecting to the TPU. You know, like it isn't a standalone piece of hardware yet, and you're not actually on a dedicated machine for it. You're on just any machine that can connect it over the network. It'd be interesting to see how that um, piece of architecture is working out. Yeah, because certainly storage works like that. That's how almost everyone's storage in the cloud is. It's, it's somewhere else on the network, and you're just addressing it over the same network interface. Everything else is going over. Yeah. Anyway, I thought this was the best of the cloud bench, the TPU benchmarks I've seen because it's an actual example of hey, we went and did some stuff on them, and shows you a bit about how that works. Um, so chip reliability, I mean, this is falling in from the silicon bugs that we talked about previously, I guess. What, what are these links? Yeah, so the, this this is, um, the, the, there's there's two articles here that are sort of similar. Um, the first one's on semi-engineering.com. We've had articles from them and talked about them before. And they were saying that um, lots of the chips, lots of the chips that are used for compute purposes are now moving into places like, you know, um, cars and other sort of environments where they're not just in a home or an office you know sitting idle so they're moving around a lot and there needs to be in a similar way that spacecraft um cpus and space craft electronics are validated to a certain level to ensure they'll function in the sort of environment they're going to be working Mm. in the same thing needs to be happening for car electronics because currently the cpus the CPUs or the chips or the microcontrollers to do things like stability control and traction control and all that sort of thing are on really large process sizes, like quite old process sizes where they're not vulnerable to things like vibration and sort of other environmental aspects of like, um, let's, let's say a car or a truck. Um, whereas lots of modern CPUs like the, uh, what's the, is it NVIDIA Parker? What's their current? 
Um, yeah, is, or Xavier is a new one. Xavier, yeah. And Xavier is only quite a small process size, so perhaps it isn't uh, as well validated for working in a sort of the, the rougher environment of a car as compared to a, a lab. Um, and basically, the bunch of statistics here, you know, actually looking at temp, like, package temperatures that sort of thing like testing procedures it's like a really readable article really really good really interesting like it really made me think about these things like previously i'd only thought about this sort of validation in terms of spacecraft but it appears it yeah it might be necessary for you know cars yeah this is interesting although um you say readable i've accidentally viewed it in a maximized window on my 27 inch iMac and it's giving me a column of text three inches wide the layout's terrible you can use the reader feature in your browser you won't get the ads either yeah so the the second link is a kind of similar thing and this was um it's based on a paper called fail slow at scale evidence of hardware performance faults in large production systems and it's similar to a similar way to the recent sort of controversy and discussions about apple slowing down some phones when the battery doesn't meet the performance requirements of the cpu this is um identifying a whole host a whole number of classes of hardware faults where the hardware doesn't fail or stop working it just gets slower over time and you might not notice until you know it reaches some threshold so this is like hardware faults and where but in, in, in a sort of different aspect okay yeah and then i guess related to this as well you've got okay, i guess it comes out of reading up on the same topic you have this link to branchless doom yeah, so this is this is. Um, hang on, let me find my link to it. Um, it's an example. Okay, so it's, it's Doom that's entirely secure against Meltdown Inspector because there's no speculative uh, branch execution because there are no branches. Yeah, so this is this is a, a. I don't know whether it's a team or one guy or what, but they they do a piece of software called the Movfuscator with M O V being the sort of pertinent part of the name. Um, it's on GitHub. You can go and have a look at it. They've got. It's basically. It, a compiler they can compile Doom to run without any branches, and basically it, hand, it handles. I've just seen the performance. Rinders yeah, approximately yeah, one frame every seven hours. Yeah, so it handles instead of the branching, it uses some weird category of faults to move around in the code. So that you know, there's never going to be the branch predictions, so you're not going to get the spectre and meltdown issues. But yeah, the the issue is performance. You know, one frame every seven hours. So. Someone in the Hacker News comments pointed out you could play this over email. <laughs> and, I mean, it does. It shows, like, in a really brutal way, like what you know, s- branching and speculative execution actually gets us. Mm. Like, you know, like many, many, many orders of magnitude performance increase. Yeah, it's fun. It's on GitHub. You can go and try it. Um, we had a few idea to do a few mini topics, basically, because we haven't prepared any big topics. But this was taking some of our. Um topic ideas for near and long-term prediction stuff and kind of going them so where, where do you want to start here i think we'll start with ports and if we've got time we'll move on to the other one i guess this this kind of came out of a previous chat we we're having about like all oh, pro laptops and people whinging about usb-c only on modern macs and things like that um where you want to start here i mean I, this is the future right the, f- the future is le- less different types of ports right that that's the way yeah. it has been going for years, right? More universal ports. Yeah. You no longer have a COM port and a printer port and, and a parallel port. PS2 and a port. port. Yeah. Like, all those things have gone away. We've, we have ended up on fewer ports. Like, it's just the natural progression of the thing. Yeah, and I think USB-C ports are great. Plug them in either which way around. Um, there's a bit of confusion with Thunderbolt. But, I mean, is it really confusing? I mean, the reality is, how many people are plugging so many different things into their computer all the time? 
Yeah, I think I think you, you you buy a thing, you plug it in, it either works or it doesn't. That's kind of the state of it. You, I mean, if you're if you're going around plugging random USB thing things into your computer, you need someone needs to have a word with you anyway <laughs> because of the security aspect. Yeah. That's just horrible. But you know, you, you tend to use a few things and you tend to know they work. You know, and if they don't work, you're going to find out really early on. It's not like they run. You know. They're on slower than expected to the point where you can't use them or, you know, like it's messing your data up. They either just work or they don't work. These things are designed to be, not mechanically, but electrically incompatible with each other. So if you think you've got a Thunderbolt port and you plug a Thunderbolt cable in a USB-C port, it turns out, oh, it's not Thunderbolt. It's just not going to work. You know, there's no other thing that's going to happen. Yeah, you don't break anything. Yeah. And they're just so much smaller as well, like the, the USB-C. So me, if- yeah. Anyway, but we're... I think well, I think a lot of it's like robustness as well. Like a USB is a fantastically well designed connector in terms of being robust. You know, it's very you can't put it in the wrong way around. Part, you can't uh, break micros it. Micros and are not less robust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there's you know fewer crazy pins and stuff in them to break. Yeah. So I mean, going forward, the predictions here is I want USB three point one to come places. So for anyone that doesn't know, that's that's USB C as well, but that's ten gigabits a second rather than five. Um, and USB 3.2 is coming as well. That that doubles that again to 20 by using... So you've got two sets of lines in a USB connector, Type-C, because it works either way around, right? Yeah. So they double the bandwidth by using both sets. Um, although I do wonder if some cables, especially some cheaper cables, maybe have both sets of connectors in the plug, but they don't have them in the, in the cable. Yep, yep. I can believe that would be a thing. Yeah, that, that would. I, I would imagine that would almost certainly be a thing. But still, so, yeah, more bandwidth. But I mean, I think I think still fewer ports. I think the number of things people actually plug in now is much much smaller. So the things we do have left, they could maybe go to wireless. Who plugs a printer in? Who buys a new printer and plugs it into a machine now? It's on the Wi-Fi. Oh yeah, we got a, a new printer in a new in one of our offices at work, and it's like yeah, so so Wi-Fi printer is it's black magic as far as I'm concerned. I literally plugged it in, turned it on, hit tapped print on a pdf on my iphone and a bit of paper came out of came out of the printer i was like this is magic yeah i mean i mean after you spend 40 minutes futzing with the interface to get to connect to the wi-fi no, was, this was pretty easy you just, you just yeah uh, and it's like it's a normal sort of inkjet it also turned out we found out today completely by surprise it prints in duplex as well oh, nice it just like spits out and sucks it back in it's really weird I've got a brother laser, and for the first while I had it, I would occasionally just forget about the network. I eventually figured out it was causing it, but the, oh, the little screen and like the, the it's like a D pad that's on it for putting the the keys in and such. Like oh, oh this one's terrible. got a touch screen. It's amazing. Yeah. So yeah. So wireless. You know, more things. Are wireless. Wireless. All the things. Yeah. So wireless printers, wireless cameras. If you're still using a camera, your computer, not just your phone. You know. Yeah, I mean wireless charging in iPhones. I think I think this will really help drive it. Actually, as people get used to not plugging things in. I mean. When you go from like plugging in micro USB into your phone to plugging uh, a lightning port in, lightning cable into an iPhone, you think, oh, it's like an animal before having to plug it in the right way around. Yeah. And then you go to yeah. wireless charging, it's the same again, if not more so. Yeah, I mean, I think the big driver for it, we may as well talk about the QI thing because it is kind of ports. The QI wireless charging Qi. standard is, is it Qi? Sorry. That's how you say it. Oh, yeah, of course it's Chinese, yeah. No, yeah. no one will say Qi, though. Everyone 
we'll call yeah. it QI, but yeah. <laughs> so a Qi charging system. Like I think the big the time it'll really take off is when lots of cars support it. So you just get in your car and you put your phone in that little tray that's sort of phone shaped. Like most cars, modern cars have them now, but they don't do the charging. But it does the charging as well. Like that's when it's really going to take off. I think. I'll tell you the big win for wireless charging is uh, parent tech support because <laughs> like everyone's had this. You go around your. Um, I mean, anyone listening to this podcast, you're not that person with the frayed iPhone cable hanging off the end of your kitchen worktop, right? You've, you're pulling your cable out carefully and it's it's fine. But you all know people. Everybody knows people. You know, it's mm. your parents, it's your you know your family, siblings, friends. You go around the house and you're, oh, can I, can I charge my phone? Yeah, yeah, there's a cable over there. And you're like, I'm not going near that without rubber gloves. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's frayed cable or broken. And then like, I used to just occasionally just buy lightning cables for, for my family. Yeah, so I went I went on a, a, a trip to Belgium recently and one of the guys I went with would, had a frayed cable and we'd spend a considerable amount of time trying to delicately balance his phone on the cable in just the right positions where it would make the connection and charge. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I've just taken to Amazoning, priming some like anchor cables to these people. It's just... Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I got, I got my mum uh, a Qi charger for her iPhone and it's just like, yeah, I fully expect this to cut down... Um, yeah, two, two problems. One, frayed cables, and the other one, where her phone is. It's, it's in the same place every time now. So, Yeah. So do you think that will come to notebooks? Do you think? I mean, it could come to small yeah, notebooks. I interesting. Suppose, but... So can we get... Yeah, I mean, because there's two, there's two issues here, right? One is power consumption, and the other is whether or not you can... It's, it's kind of a... Um, it's where do you put the coils, right? Because you have a coil in the charging pad, you have a coil in the receiving device, and you have to line them up to induce the current, right? Yeah. On a phone, that's kind of easy, because you have a pad that's basically as wide as the phone is and if the phone is balanced on so it doesn't fall off then the phone will charge that that's pretty much how they work but how do you do it for a laptop do you have a pad the size of the laptop do you have a well see i one of my well so one of my desks not both of my desks i use like a big thing it's like a i can read it from here like an a2 cutting mat a big green thing with the measurements on it and stuff i just imagine it's something like that that you work hmm. with your laptop on you know I can add a little see... one off to the side if you got a big monitor, you know, something like well, that. Well, the thing is, as soon as you plug in the monitor, then that can provide power back to the laptop, right? Yeah. If you're in a modern Yeah, thing. yeah, you're right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's an interesting thing about modern things as well. But then I guess you say, okay, if everything is wireless, well, why is that wire there, right? Yeah. Because you need power anyway. But yeah, if you go to wireless, wireless pads. So, is, is that our prediction? Is wireless charging laptops leading to completely wireless laptops? Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty close there. I mean, Apple have the, is it the MacBook with one port? You know, yeah. MacBook one, people call it. I mean, that's pretty close to it. I've just had a, a thought, is there not a wireless USB standard? I'm sure there was. There is, there from is. ages ago, and then never yeah. became, nothing ever became of it. Okay, but yeah. so maybe not that. Then. So the future of ports is no ports for anybody. I think it's even less ports, or less usage of ports. Because, like, okay, so I can totally see that, especially for everyday things. Like you say, most people don't plug stuff into their laptop. I mean, case in point, my wife's got a macbook with one usb port and that's that's never a problem like yeah occasionally when you're doing like a, a backup to a hard drive or something for a you know an extra backup that'll feed nicely into our next topic might uh want to plug in a hard drive and a power adapter at the same time but you need to make sure it's charged first but i, I mean yeah. in terms of not plugging things in um mentioned my mom's got a wireless charger now for a new iphone she might never plug anything into that yeah like never you can set it up from iCloud literally never gets used i mean it's it's not a crazy crazy to imagine a future where there are no ports and phones yeah i mean i suppose with the iphone it's kind of incredible when the iphone came out in 2007 how sort of tethered it was to your laptop you had to have a laptop on itunes to get it started and put stuff on it and that's and now you just don't at all it's a completely 
separate independent device. Right. So just just to end the, end this topic and then move on to our next quick topic, if we want to. Although we're about thirty three minutes already, so maybe not. We say the iPhone ten Mark Two Ten S. I don't know. XS. Eleven. XS. XS makes it seem like it's a small iPhone. Tiny, tiny iPhone. It's an Australian rock band. Yeah. Yeah. Say the iPhone XS comes out and there's no no ports, none at all. Would you buy it? I don't think it would put me off it because they're bound to have a solution. Well, it is. It's Qi charging and uh, AirPods. Yeah. I I, I don't think it would. No, I think. the thing I'm thinking about is headphones because I like nice headphones, but then I'm thinking how many times do I actually wear my nice headphones and have them plugged into the phone? It's hardly ever. Right, it's yeah. just one of those things. It's a what if. Like You'd buy it, in right? the car. And then in, in the car, I can you know stick a Qi charging pad in one of the trays on the dashboard. Yeah, and that's it. And it's, it's, cheap, it's cheaper to buy a Qi charging pad, even a decent name brand one, than an Apple lightning cable. Yeah. Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting sort of thought experiment. Even like a, a decent... Um, a decent anchor cable, right, which is cheap name brand but off brand. That's that's like six pound a cable or something, and you can get a a cheap pad for like fifteen quid, you know, yeah. for a name brand. So it's not not a huge difference in price. So I mean, yeah, if anyone listening to this thinking the future of ports is no ports, they're mad. A can can you envisage a future where you never plug your phone in? And I think you totally can. Um, and B is, would you if your next phone was you know the next version of whatever you use at the moment? Galaxy S10, say, because they've announced S9, and it had no ports at all. Would you still buy it? And I think, I think for me, the answer would be yes as well, right? Yeah, because you just like, like when the Apple changed the Lightning cables, we just got Lightning cables and it was fine, you know. So yeah. if we change to what is actually a, like an industry wide standard for charging, that seems like the way to go as well. Okay, and let, let me take this to a more extreme. Next computer, no ports, would you buy it? Um, so, okay, let me say. If, if it was my notebook, probably yes. I could. I could work my way around that or there's bound to be a solution for it. Yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't put you off. I mean, I'm staring at an iMac here and I'm thinking, well, you've got to power it somehow. But other than that, everything that's else... It. Everything else is yeah. plugged... I have other stuff plugged in, right? I've got... Uh, there's an SSD, there's a hard drive, there's a mouse. There's a mouse and a trackpad. The mouse could be wireless as well, so it doesn't need to be plugged in. The yep. drive's connected. It could, could be NAS units on the network. And yep. Okay, mine's wired into the network. doesn't have to be. Um, and then all you've got is power and okay wireless charging for an iMac maybe not but you know one yeah. one port and it's power could be could be yeah yeah I guess yeah it's certainly when you actually think about it compared to like when I think about the back of a, a PC tower in the 90s and then look at a machine now like there's like so many fewer ports like like we listed right at the start of this topic we've killed off like maybe even 10 different ports you, know, yeah. like you get more types lot. of display port these days, right? Display, you get display port, you might see mini DP, you see HDMI. But uh, you tend to be able to route one into the other. Yeah. Yeah. So they so, don't need to be there. Can you imagine any situation which you'd have more ports or larger ports? Um, not anymore. I mean, the only thing I can think of, the only thing that comes to mind just now is connecting like GPUs to notebooks and machines, and they are like a you know, like a doubling or a quadrupling of the bandwidth to be good and maybe facilitated by a bigger port, but that's a pretty niche thing. Yeah, it's a niche and it's a high-end thing, right? And yeah, they're never yeah. going to go away at the high end of the professional use cases. Yeah. Um, but yeah, okay, so the future is no ports. All right, well, thanks for listening. If you've got any feedback for us or you want to um, dispute our reasoning on uh, ports or no ports, then you can write to us at wrong on the internet at pinkoutpodcast.com. You can find the show notes online 
at the same website and you can follow the podcast at Pincurrent Podcast. You can get Doug and at Douglas F. Shearer. I'm at the underscore accidental on Twitter. So, thanks again. <laughs> ah, I thought of something earlier, but now it's totally gone. <laughs>